Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and join me in Matthew chapter 25. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you don't own one, know that we have a stack of some on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with one. So grab one of those on your way out. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, of course, is the first uh, book in the New Testament. It's one of four gospel accounts, books written to tell the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So Matthew chapter 25. I was startled awake this morning because there was some light shining through my window. Uh, I didn't know what to do with that. I haven't seen that in a while. And so I woke up and I ran to the window thinking, Jesus, did you come back? Is that, is that you? I looked up and saw the clouds parting and there was this light coming down. Jesus. And no, it was just this thing that previous generations referred to as the sun that they used to see a lot. And we don't see very much, and my daughter, Adeline, perhaps doesn't even know what it is. I'm going to have to explain to my one-year-old what the sun is. I don't know what's more likely nowadays, if it's Jesus coming back or the sun shining bright. I don't know what to bank on every day. And, and it's interesting to me that we are stepping into a passage tonight in Matthew chapter 25 that actually tells a story impressing upon us how you and I are to live our lives every day we, we wake up and the sun is still shining. Every day we wake up and Jesus has not yet returned or we are still breathing in this world. There's a parable that Jesus tells about the way in which we should embrace the day, the way in which we should embrace the moments that we are given in this world. And it comes in the form of this parable. This parable, if some of you are familiar with Christianity or the church, this is a familiar parable to you perhaps. But I want to kind of take a fresh look at this parable because... If you are like me, uh, you may have been reading this parable in a way that might not be precisely true about what this parable is getting after. So you step into this story in Matthew chapter 25, and it is a parable. Now understand that Jesus often taught his disciples through parables. Parables were these stories Jesus would tell where he'd take an ordinary object or an ordinary situation that was familiar to many people, and he would use these stories to communicate incredible realities concerning the kingdom of God. And this parable is no different because this parable falls into a stretch of stories found here in Matthew 24 and 25 that deals with uh, the consummation of the kingdom of God or that moment when Jesus returns and he makes all things new, when he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. And this is where this parable begins when verse 14, Jesus would tell his disciples, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, it there refers all the way back to chapter 25, verse 1, referring to the kingdom of heaven. It there is the kingdom of heaven. So this story is about living in light of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may wonder, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, I assure you, it's not necessarily a place. Uh, the kingdom of he heaven and the kingdom of God is not a place that you can locate on a map. The kingdom of heaven is more of a pulse, when you think kingdom of God or you read kingdom of God or king, kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, think kingship, think rule, think reign, think redemption. That's what we're getting after. The kingdom of heaven is about a way of life lived under the redemptive reign and rule of King Jesus. So it's a way of life that has broken into the world through the first coming of Jesus where he lived his life and he died his death and he rose from the grave. He did that to kickstart the kingdom of God in the world in a way that had not, had not come previously. And when Jesus returns, when he, as he's ascended, one day he's going to return again. And when he does, uh, the full realization of Jesus' redemptive reign and rule will be realized. 
But what this parable is getting after is that as we are anticipating that day, there is a way in which you and I should live now. Any day we wake up and the sun is still shining, any day we wake up and there's still breath in our lungs, there is a priority and a purpose and a passion to the way in which we should go about our days. This is where the story goes. After he says it will be like this man going on a journey, then he calls his servants. Of course, the servants here refer to the disciples of Jesus. Uh, The master is Jesus, and he says he entrusted to them his property. Now, when you see that, you begin to discover a little something about the master's dominion, about the master's rule and reign. Notice that what the master gives to his servants in this story, it belongs to the master. It's his property. Everything that is given in this text and ultimately all the talents that are going to be that are being given to us right now belong to Jesus. This is his dominion. This is his territory. This is his property. Therefore, it's significant in how we utilize these talents, whatever they may be, and how we engage them for hit kingdom purposes in the world now. And it's even more significant when you drop all the way down to verse 19 and you get this moment when the master returns after having been gone a long time and what happens there? It says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and what did he do? He settled accounts with them. There's accountability given to how these servants would utilize the talents that are entrusted to them, how they would steward the property of the master in the story. Now, you read that and you think about, okay, well, talents. Your mind might think, well, talents, those are things that we're good at. Those are abilities. Those are things that we can do well. That's typically how I've read and understood this parable. You think a talent, that's something you could do in a talent show, right? If you can sing, you can participate. If you can dance, you can participate. If you can juggle, participate, juggle for Jesus, use your talents, right? I'm kind of double-jointed, and so I can be double-jointed for Jesus. That's my talent in some of those shows growing up as a kid. Now, that's one way to look at this, and it's true to some degree. I just don't think that perspective is, is sufficient. I don't think when Jesus uses the word talents here, and he talks about five talents given to one servant, two given to another, and one given to another, I don't think he's simply meaning those abilities that come naturally to us. And the reason why I think that is because when you think back on what the disciples might have imagined the moment Jesus shared this story with them, I doubt Peter looked over at Andrew and said, Andrew, uh, you're really good at casting nets and catching fish. That's your talent. Let's, let's figure out how to use that uh, for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think the conversation went that way because in their mind, the word translated talent didn't mean ability. The word translated talent was referred to a unit of measure. It was a weight. This was how money was counted. When you would have precious metals, silver or gold, you would weigh them and a talent then was a unit of measure. It referred to weight. And the second reason why I think, uh, or why I, don't, why I think the talents here don't exclusively refer to our abilities is because you look at the end of verse 15 and what does it say? It says, to another, to another, to, to another one, but to each he gave what? He gave according to his ability, according to the abilities that were already present within these servants. So the talents then must be something distinct. It, it must be something more fully encompassing. So here's what I think a talent is. 
I think when Jesus talks about the master giving these five talents to one and two to another and one to another, I think talents refer to the weight of our lives. Talents refer to the opportunities we have to live for the glory of God and the good of other people. Talents refer to our relationships, our resources, every season of life that we may find ourselves in. Some of those seasons lend themselves to a broader kingdom influence than others. And so when, God, when the master gives talents to these servants, he's saying, look, I'm going to give you ample opportunities and ample resources and ample occasions for you to magnify the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God. And yes, your abilities and your talents play into that, but understand that Jesus here is painting a picture about influence. He's talking about our responsibilities. He's talking about the obligations we have to live for the glory of God and the good of others. And yes, that includes how you use your talents, how you use your abilities, how you use what we talked about last week, your spiritual gifts, recognizing that that is a part of this all-encompassing talents that refer to our responsibilities, our opportunities, the weight of our lives, so to speak. And because of that, that means Jesus, if we look at the master's dominion, if this is his property, what does that mean? But that our lives ultimately belong to him. The time we have to live in this world ultimately belongs to him. It's a gift to us. The relationships we have to magnify the gospel are ultimately belong to Jesus and they've been entrusted to us and we are to use these in ways that would honor God and help people. We are to steward our responsibilities and our opportunities well for the glory of God. Now, one of the things that's challenging about this, if that's how we understand talents, then you're able to move into verse, I think, 15 and understand something about the master's discretion. So yes, you have the master's dominion where he is sovereign over all the situations, all the opportunities, all the responsibilities we have in this world. But we also know that he divvies these talents out according to his discretion, however he sees fit. This is why you see a breakdown there where to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another one. He did not give every single disciple the same responsibilities or the same opportunities. Some disciples had the opportunity for a wider, deeper influence than others. There's discretion here, and it's one of the more mind-boggling things about this whole dynamic. It's one of the things that really causes my, many of our hearts to kind of cringe because we live in America, and we love equality, and we want everybody to have the same equal resources and the same equal opportunities. But here we're getting a picture in the kingdom of God that that desire for equality may not be true as it relates to the responsibilities and the opportunities that God gives us in this world. It's one of the more sobering, humbling realities in the universe. But it's one of the things that will, probably, that will never change until the consummation of the kingdom of God. When we live our lives through this world, there's always going to be people who are better than us at things. There are always going to be people who have a broader influence than us. There's always going to be people who may have a less influence than us. There's some people whose opportunities may seem more enriching and more opportunistic than ours. And if you and I live our lives constantly comparing and contrasting our opportunities with the opportunities afforded to others, the danger is that our hearts are going to grow embittered and we're not going to be faithful with whatever situation and whatever opportunity and whatever responsibility we have to live again for the glory of God 
and the good of others. We're not going to capitalize on the talents that Jesus entrusts to us, whether they be many or whether they be few. You have the master's discretion here, and I think you see the master's discretion in the passage we looked at last week, Ephesians chapter 4. What happened? We read the text where it says that Jesus or God gave to each person gifts, spiritual gifts. But we know that not every person has the same spiritual gifts. Not every person has the same amount of spiritual gifts. Not every person in the church is going to occupy the same position of leadership and responsibility and opportunity. So what do we do with that? Well, we recognize that that's a reality And then we humbly respond to the opportunities we have to make the most of every opportunity we have, whether we consider those opportunities big or whether we consider those opportunities small. This parable drives us to a mentality of fidelity. So we will be found faithful whether we are doing a lot or whether we think we're doing a little. Whether we're five talent, two talent, or one talent, the goal here is fidelity. The goal here is faithfulness. Now, I don't understand why this is. I can't tell you why Jane may get more than Alice. I can't, under, I can't explain to you why some people's situation seems to be just a silver lining of prosperity and others, maybe it's a little, the, the grind is a little harder for them. I don't know why one person may get cancer and another person may not get cancer. I don't know why some person always gets the job and the other person doesn't get the job. I don't know why life is harder for some individuals and just kind of comes more easily for others. I, I don't know why that is. I can't explain it. And if you and I, again, well, let me say it this way. I can't tell you why some people are born here in Seattle with relatively good access to the gospel and other individuals are born in a place like Baghdad where they don't get gospel exposure easily or often. I don't know why that is. But the point of the parable isn't for us to sit back and fret over why that situation is the way that it is. Because if we do, if we just engage in a comparison contrast, constantly weighing ourselves against the weight of other people, we're going to waste our lives. We will wither away. We will not be found faithful with whatever opportunities we have to make much of Jesus and to live for the kingdom of God. So you have the master's dominion that he's sovereign over all the talents that are being given to the servants. But you also see the master's discretion. He's deciding according to his will who gets what, this, that, and the other. And so it's a challenging parable. It's a, it's a hard parable in that regard. Now you can hear that and your heart can respond in one of two ways. Some of you can hear that and you can just sink into a, you can begin to gripe and complain. And you can even use that as an excuse for you disengaging as it relates to participating in the kingdom of God. But then others of you might hear this and you can respond by accepting that and starting where you are and doing whatever you can to serve the kingdom of God with whatever opportunities God has entrusted to you, whatever life situation you may be in. Because not every person will be equal in terms of our talents or our gifts or our opportunities, but every one of us have the same chance to do something with what's been given. We all have the same opportunity to use whatever situation we are in for the glory of God and for the good of others. We all have the opportunity to be faithful. Every one of us has the opportunity to be found faithful. But in order to do that, you and I got to think a little bit about what the master expects from us. 
So you see the master's dominion, you see the master's discretion, but then there's also the master's expectations. And, and you and I really begin to see what Jesus expects from his disciples in how when he returns and he addresses all three servants, his response to them is revealing uh, his expectations of them and by extension, his expectations of you and I. And what you begin to see in how Jesus addresses these guys is that the master expects each and every one of us to invest the lives that we've been given and the various seasons found therein to their fullest potential in the kingdom of God. That's what he expects, that we invest our lives as they are to their fullest potential in the kingdom of God. Two of the three servants do that. The guy with five talents did that, brought back five more. Jesus was pleased. Jesus commended him. The guy with two talents, same thing. He invested all that he had. He was proactive. He was energetic in his activity. Got two more, brought it to Jesus. Jesus commended him. But there was one guy who didn't. There was one guy who did not invest what he had. There was one guy who decided instead of risking that which God had the master had entrusted to him, he decides to play it safe. And we discover later in the parable that he played it safe out of a sense of fear and out of a sense of insecurity. He took his one talent, his one opportunity, his limited amount of influence and responsibility. And what did he do? He went and buried it in the ground. He did what Ron Swanson did on Parks and Recreation. He took his goal and he buried it next to the tree. You know, he didn't want to risk it in any way, shape, or form. Well, this is where this guy is. He buried it. And in the end, when you get down... I don't know how when this passage was being read to you a moment ago, I don't know how it made you feel. I don't know if it caused you to squirm a little bit because it's, it's a harsh indictment. But again, Jesus is telling this story and he's telling this story for a reason. And so you come to the end of the parable and you find this one guy who buried his talent and then Jesus describes him as wicked. That's a harsh word. Jesus describes him as slothful. Jesus later casts him Cast what he says, the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Now, if you would have read that description and I would ask you, what do you think this guy did wrong? I'm sure none of you would say, well, he probably took his talents and buried them in the ground somewhere. You probably would say, well, that guy's a pedophile. You'd probably say that guy's a rapist. You'd probably say that guy's a murderer. You would probably point out wrong terrible, horrendous things that he would have done to be treated this way. But notice the gravity of the story that Jesus is telling. The gravity of this story is found in that this guy was condemned not because he did a bunch of bad things. This guy was condemned because he didn't do the one thing expected of him as a servant in the kingdom of God. He did not risk. He did not obey. He did not steward. He played it safe. And that's what got him in trouble. That's the gravity of the story. This guy playing it safe in the kingdom of God as though he needed to play it safe. Do you understand that he plays it safe because he doesn't understand the goodness of the master? He believes the master to be a harsh man. He believes the master to be someone who's just going to come and settle accounts in a cold and calloused way. He's not thinking of the master as someone to be enjoyed. He's not thinking of the master as someone whose character is good and gracious and loving. He's not thinking rightly about his master, and so he plays it safe. He plays it safe because he does not understand 
how good his master is. And I'm wondering if there are some disciples in this space tonight who've been entrusted with opportunities and responsibilities. Five, two, and one. And rather than living your life to its fullest potential, investing in the kingdom of God, you are playing it safe because you don't know. You don't know how free you are to take risks in the kingdom of God. You don't know how free you are to mess up. You don't know how free you are to fall on your face. You don't know how free you are to misstep. You don't understand the grace and the goodness of the master. But this is precisely what this story is driving us to. We don't hide our talents. We don't play it safe in life. We actually obey Jesus. And as we obey Jesus, inherent to that obedience is risk. And risk, as it relates to the kingdom of God, is usually right. There's a guy by the name of John Piper, pastor of a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You read some words from him earlier. He wrote a little book called Risk is Right. It's a great little book where he's surveying uh, the scriptures and he's identifying the amount of risk that was inherent to people's obedience as they sought to live for God's kingdom in the world. And he traces a bunch of stories pointing out where risk was so common, how it was a regular and normal feature to a person's obedience. You take, for example, a guy named Jonathan. There was a moment where Jonathan, he was a friend of David, he was also a warrior, and, and he trusted God, and there came this situation where Jonathan was facing an army, a little battalion, a troop of soldiers, and, and they had this hill that he needed to take. And Jonathan was standing there with his armor bearer, and his armor bearer would walk with him wherever he goes, and he would fight with Jonathan, Jonathan protect Jonathan, just be with Jonathan every step of the way. Now there's this moment where Jonathan is looking at this force that he needs to overcome and he think, he believes God wants him to do so and he looks over at his armor bearer and listen to what he says. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, he looks at him and he says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was his armor bearer and he looked at me and says, hey, let's go take this army. Maybe God will help us. I'm not going to go with him. If there's a perhaps in that sentence, I don't want to hear it. I need you to speak with certainty. I need you to speak with guarantee. I need you to speak with confidence. I, I want to walk forward knowing what the immediate outcome of that action will be. And the moment my heart goes there is the moment I'm afraid of risk. It's the moment I am not walking in faithful obedience with whatever opportunity or situation I find myself in. There's risk involved. Perhaps God will help us. Same thing with Esther. You remember her story where she has this opportunity to go before the king, this non-believing king, and, and plead for the, the betterment of the people of Israel, to plead for their deliverance and to plead, plead for their protection. But she knows if she goes before the king and the king hadn't called for her, that's, that, would get, that often got people killed. And so she goes to her uncle, a guy named Mordecai, and he asks, she asks him to tell the people of Israel, start praying and fasting because I'm going to go before the king and he hasn't called me into his quarters, but I'm going anyways because I need to plead on my people's behalf. I need to love my people well, and so I'm going to risk my life to do so. And so she goes before, or in that conversation, she looks at her uncle, and in an Esther chapter 4, verse, I believe it's 16, she looks at him and says, if I perish, I perish. I may go before the king and he may crush me. If that happens, so be it. She understood the risk that was involved 
in her obedience. She understood the life that she was given wasn't to be a life lived in safety and security and comfort and predictability. The life she was given to live involved risky obedience, faithful servants. And when you walk in that way, you do not walk with guarantees. At least you do not walk with immediate guarantees. You don't know the immediate outcome of your actions or your decisions when you are seeking to live for Jesus in this world. That's where risk comes into play. That's why risk becomes normative. This is the Apostle Paul's experience. Paul planting churches all across the known world in the first century, making much of Jesus, planting churches in hard places. And his journey through the book of Acts is not a pleasant journey. There was a lot of risk involved. So much risk that he felt danger and struggle just about every time he turned around. He never knew exactly how things were going to go down for him when he would step into a new city and start talking about Jesus. He didn't know if his church plants would thrive or if they would fail. But risk was inherent to his call to follow Jesus. Risk was part of obedience as it relates to the kingdom of God. This is why John Piper would conclude in his book, Risk is Right, he would make this statement. He would say, even the... He would say the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. You either live with risk or you waste your life. But so many of us only want to follow Jesus and be good stewards with our time and our opportunities and our responsibilities when we know the immediate outcome of our faithfulness. And to that, Piper would say, it is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on earth will turn out for us. It is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on earth will turn out for us and that we take risks for the cause of God. The serpent, the serpent, the servant who was condemned at the end of the parable was condemned because he refused to risk. He didn't know how free he was to risk. He did not know how good his master was that would allow him to take risks, maybe even fall flat on his face in some endeavor, and yet still know that the master was good enough and kind enough to love him and to lift him back up after he falls. Sure, taking risks is dangerous. Anytime you and I are called to take risks as it relates to our faith and our obedience, It can be dangerous. But what you begin to see at the end of this parable is that the refusal to risk, the refusal to engage, the refusal to make the most of your moments for the glory of God and for the good of other people, the refusal to do that is even more dangerous. There's a picture of that again in one of these stories in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. Is a story about how the people of Israel were coming into the promised land. And right when they get on the border, they're about to enter the land that God promised to give them. God said, this is yours. And so they dispatched 12 spies to go and to survey the scene and see if, they, if the time was right for them to enter. And so these 12 spies go and they survey the scene and they came back and gave a report. 10 of the 12 spies reported, we can't go now. We can't take the promised land, even though God told us to, because the armies over there are too big. Everyone's giant, and we are like grasshoppers before them. And so they begin to report that back to the people of Israel. There were two spies who said, no, God said to do it. We're doing it. Yeah, it's risky, but we're going for it. But the ten spies, their argument won out. The people of Israel refused to act in obedience in that moment. And do you know what happened? In that passage, Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, God 
talks about the report of those 10 spies and what word does he use to describe it? He says their report was wicked. They did not believe God was good enough and strong enough to lead them to where God would have them go. They weren't willing to take a risk and God said that unwillingness to risk is actually evil. That's the word. It's the same word, same type of word that Jesus uses in Matthew 25 when he describes the servant with one talent as wick. It's the same language. It's the same God assessing that situation. And what's challenging about that is that everything those 10 spies said about the situation was true. All the details were right. Those other forces were bigger than Israel. Those other forces were stronger than Israel. Everything they said was right. But even then, God said their refusal to risk was unjustified. Because even then, they weren't living according to an awareness of who their God is. And if you were a one-talent person or a two-talent person or a five-talent person and you were bearing your talents, you're not acting in obedience, you're not doing the things that Jesus is telling you to do over the course of your relationship with him because you're afraid of how things might go for you or how, they, how those things might turn out, you are revealing that you might not understand the heart of your God. You might not understand the heart of Jesus. So let me ask you, what risks may God be calling you to take right now? What opportunities are before you to glorify God and to do good for other people? What, what risks are, is, may God be calling you to take right now? For some of you, that may be a new way to engage this city with the gospel. Some of you perhaps are dreamers and visionaries. And you have all these creative ideas on how weak the church can engage the city with the gospel, but you're not sharing them because you're afraid of what someone might say about them. You think, well, if I, if I tell somebody this idea, they may look at me like I'm crazy. If I cast a vision for the gospel in the city that is bigger than the city, then people might think I'm nuts. And so you're just kind of holding it. You're, you're hiding it. You're burying that talent. And if that's you, if you are a dreamer or a visionary, if you are apostolic, as we talked about last week, come forward. Talk about the ideas and the thoughts and the creative ways to engage this city with the gospel. Disclose them. Don't be afraid. Don't hide them. Recognize that you can take risks in the kingdom of God. You can take risks amongst the people of God. We can talk about ways to do things differently. Dreamers, visionaries, come forward. Perhaps some of you, risk in your life looks like pulling the trigger on that idea of adoption. Perhaps Jesus has been stirring in your heart to adopt and risk in your life is to do so. Others perhaps may be engaging in foster care in this city and you're wondering, well, am I really ready to, to do this? I don't know if I can handle it. A risk in your life may be to proceed with the foster care situation. There's a lot of risk in that. There's emotional risk. There's financial risk. There's all types of risk involved in that. But if you and I are going to care for the least of these, if you and I are going to defend the defenseless, we have to be willing to take risks. We have to take advantage of the opportunities and the talents, so to speak, that Jesus entrusts to us. Perhaps others of you have been considering a divinely directed career change and you're worried about moving for it because you think if you leave your current job, uh, your next job might be uncertain. It might not be as stable, although it would put you in a better position to make disciples. It would put you in a better position to free up your time and your schedule, to be present when you're home with your family, whatever the case may be. But you're not really ready to pull the trigger because you're afraid to risk. Perhaps you have stock options that haven't reached their maturity and you're not willing to leave that behind, to go forward in the direction God 
might be leading you to go. Let me encourage you. Don't be afraid. Allow the perfect love of Jesus to cast out every hint of fear in your heart. What do you think kept Paul going? What do you think kept Paul risking? What do you think kept Paul obeying the call of God on his life? It was an understanding and an apprehension of the master's commendation of his life. And I'm not talking about the one that he will receive at the end of his life as present in this parable. I'm talking about the commendation he received from the master when the master went to the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he declared how much he loves his people. He declares how much he loves this world. When Jesus went to the cross, he did so to show us the kind of love capable of dispelling fear and motivating risk. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 8 when he's reflecting on so many things that are going down in his life and ministry and he's focusing on the liberating love of Jesus in his life, the commendation of God at the cross. Listen to what he says. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, what does he say? We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know why you can take risks. You want to know why you can trust the character of God in whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's a good one or a bad one, whether it's a five-talent kind or a one-talent kind. You want to know why you can trust the master. Well, you look to the cross and you hear God's commendation coming forth from there, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, and nothing in this world can separate you from my love, not even your failures as you take risks. The reality is you may do things uh, in a desire to obey Jesus, and you may start walking in a particular direction, and you may misstep. You may screw up. You may do something poorly. But does that separate you from the love of God? No, because in the kingdom of God, risk is always right. Risk is always insured in the kingdom of God. The blood of Jesus is our insurance. The death and resurrection of Christ is our victory. This is why you and I can steward the lives that we are given, whether they are great lives or hard lives. We can steward all of our life towards that which would advance and accentuate the kingdom of God in the world that is. So we want this perfect love to cast out fear. And when we allow this perfect love of God through Jesus to cast out and dispel our fear so that we are taking risks, that will drive us to the moment of that second commendation. If we're thinking about the cross and we're living from the gospel, we're going to get to the point where, yes, at the end of our days, the master's going to look at us and he's going to commend us 
And one of my favorite things about this passage is both the five servant, five talent servant, and the two talent servant, they both hear the same commendation. Let me give you an example. I'm going to ask all of you to look down on your Bibles and put your eyes on verse 21. Put your eyes on verse 21. And then I'm going to ask everybody on this side, we have a line, aisles are created in churches for this kind of reason. So this group can be divided and put in a different category and do something different. Verse 23, put your eyes on verse 23. Now, on my cue, you guys are going to read verse 21, and you guys are going to read verse 23, and we're just going to read it out loud together. On my cue. Ready, set, go. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You guys are reading verse 21. Jesus, the master, talking to the five-talent guy. You guys are reading verse 23, the master talking to the two-talent guy. But was there any difference in the language? There was no difference. Same commendation, coming to the faithful stewards of that which God had given them. So if you're discouraged because you feel like you're a one-talent person, don't be. You qualify for the same commendation. You have the opportunity to invest your life in the kingdom of God in such a way where when your life is over and you're standing before the master, he can look upon you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he can entrust you with more responsibilities in the consummated kingdom of God. He can entrust you with a deeper enrichment of joy with your master as you live with Jesus forever. Now, I don't know how all that works, but I know that's what the parable is talking about. He gives more. He gives more. He gives more. His commendation. You can have more responsibility. You've been faithful with a little. You've got much here. Come and enjoy your master. Come and share in your master's joy. There there is an enrichment of joy available to those who steward their lives, who live by faith in the goodness of God, leveraging every situation, every opportunity, every responsibility we are given to the glory of God and to the good of other people. We talk about the value of sacrificial generosity. This is really what we're getting after. Stewarding every aspect of our lives towards the kingdom of God. Honoring God, helping people. Honoring God, helping people. Every situation lends itself to that end. Every circumstance lends itself to that opportunity. And so we don't want to hide. We don't want to shrink back. We don't want to live in fear. We want to fully invest ourselves in that which God is about. And I wonder if some of you perhaps are also shrinking in fear, maybe not because you are, you know, you might not trust in the character of God and this, that, and the other. It might be simply because you are afraid of what other people might think. And you might not want to fully invest your life because you feel like if you do, somebody might call you a radical Christian or somebody might call you uh, this, that, or the other. They might say you're over the top. They might say you're nuts. And so the fear of man might be paralyzing some of you from fully investing your life in the kingdom of God. And if that's where you are, I want to end by sharing with you these words from Theodore Roosevelt. He actually speaks to this dynamic in a way that I find very, very helpful. Theodore Roosevelt said, It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how strong the man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, 
who errs and comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error or or shortcoming. Who does actually try to do the deed? Who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause? Who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. It kind of reminds me of what Paul would say at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, if, if Jesus Christ is not risen... I'm living the kind of life that is above, among all people should, that should be pitied. Like my life is pitiful if Jesus is not risen because he's risking so much for the cause of the kingdom. What would happen if we became the kind of church who could be described in similar ways? Who was risking things in our service and obedience to Jesus? Who was walking by faith in ways that, that showcase the character of our God and his goodness and the hope that we have in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider the various circumstances and situations and seasons that we are currently in. May we consider our responsibilities and our obligations. May we consider our abilities and our talents and our skills. God, may we consider all of these in light of uh, how you are our master and how you have entrusted our lives to us to be lived for your glory and for the good of other people. I pray, God, that your grace would abound in our lives so that we might live by faith and take the necessary risks you call us to take in obedience to you. And I pray, God, that you would give us the grace of knowing that although the immediate outcome of our decisions and our actions we may not know and they may come, become confusing, we, we know the out, ultimate outcome of our lives and the ultimate outcome of our obedience. We, we know that you, God, are for us and not against us, and we know that you've commended us through the cross and you will commend us in the end. We trust you for that. And so, God, would you help us to live towards that all in Jesus' name. Amen.